thank you so much for tuning in to Northridge Church Podcast. We're so glad to have you a part of our weekly service. For more information, please visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your hearts as we dive into God's Word. All right, it's getting that time, and man, we want to get, yeah, go ahead, give Jesus a praise, I'll tell you. It's our 15th year holding Rush Weekend, and uh, we're going to be back out here at the Ridge. We're super excited about that, but as you saw from that video, the last words, we cannot do it without our volunteers, so please go and log on rush2018.com and sign up to volunteer. Uh, you may not realize how big of a help you will be. No matter what you think your talents are, we can use you. Uh, also, we have some packets out there. We're still seeking partnerships to make the weekend, weekend possible. It's a big undertaking. We cannot do it without our partners, and literally just... Just appreciate you so much if you would pray about that and look at that option as it, uh, as it were. So today, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, Chapter 3. John's Gospel, Chapter 3. I want to start a new series that's going to be dealing with what you've heard these guys speaking about today, which is the word encounter. Everybody look to your neighbor and say, encounter. Reminds me of a story of a young pastor who, back in the 80s, went on a missions trip to the Philippines. And he was telling me this story. He was a basketball player. He played college ball, and he went to, uh, to the Philippines to play ball. And one of the things that they were going to do is they would have a captive audience. As if they would play ball, they would go into the time of halftime, and they would have one of the basketball players. Most of them were called to the ministry, and they'd share the gospel. And they were seeing converts by the, by the hundreds. And every night what they would do is they would give people a ticket, and they would have someone new come in. It would be a new crowd every single night. And that way, they weren't doing the same thing with the same community. So they would send the people, the ones who had gotten saved, and they would kind of petition them and challenge them to go out into the surrounding communities to bring in new people so that more people could hear the gospel. It wasn't uncommon to have 10, 11,000 people uh, in about three or four weeks' time come to know Christ. It was the most amazing thing he'd ever seen. Well, there was this one local pastor, Filipino pastor, that he met, very, very, very humble guy, real sweet, little timid, small guy in stature. And this guy started, you know, just so passionate, man, when he would preach in the pulpit. But no one came to his church. Literally, he would open the doors of this church. He'd been faithfully preaching. And literally, only his family would sit in the congregation. He had six kids. He had a grandmother. He had different people out there. There was about 14 people there total. No one outside the community came. They hated this guy. He said, he told the pastor, John, he said, John, I, I go through the community. They, they, they throw fruit at me. They, they'll call me names. They'll, you know, berate me, and they'll, they'll do all these things. He said, I, I can't get ahead. And he said, but you know what? I have such a desire to share the gospel with my people. So John began to share with him. He said, look, man, why don't you step up in one of the halftime shows? Why don't you share the gospel? He goes, no, man, I can never do that. You just don't understand. He's smiling the whole time. He said, man, they would, they would throw their shoes at me if they couldn't find fruit. You don't understand. They hate me. And he kept encouraging him. John kept encouraging him. So uh, a few days went by. Every night they were doing the same thing. And so one night this Filipino pastor walked up to him. He said, tonight's the night. He said, I want to share the gospel. He said, man, awesome. So they got around and they prayed. Sure enough, it came to halftime, and the pastor, John, that was from the U.S., went over and sat down, and he began to, he took his shoes off, you know, and kind of resting up because he was one of the star players, great basketball player. And he looked out, and he said, now, as this young pastor walked out in the center of the floor, this young Filipino pastor, the boos started immediately. Started booing him and berating him and calling him names in their, in their, in their dialect, in their tongue. And, 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 and this guy, John, he felt terrible. He's like, man, I encouraged him to do that. And they started shouting him down and the whole time. He's smiling. I mean, he's got a smile on his face. He's just preaching the gospel, and he's just letting it flow. 
Sure enough, they just kept on and kept on. They started taking their shoes off, their sandals off, started throwing them. He said, before it was over, we had the sandals full, full out their court. People had to go pick them up after halftime. He's getting hit by them, and he's smiling the whole time. He comes off the court. And John, this pastor, told me the story. He said, he said man, I'm, I'm sitting there with my head down because I feel like such a failure. I had encouraged him to do that. And now he's going to be more defeated than when he went out the first time. He said, and he looked down at his shoes, and he sees that guy's little feet come walking up, and he had sandals on himself. He said, and he looked up at him. He said, the guy was smiling from ear to ear. He's like, called him by name, whatever his name was. He said, man, why are you smiling? He says, because I got to share the gospel with my people. And he said this. He said, because I gave them an opportunity to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, and the rest is up to them. I've done what God's called me to do. I wonder, can we say that in our, in our walk as we share the faith? We've given them an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus, and the rest is up to them. You know, as I begin to kind of unfold this series, I, I begin to look at that word encounter, and I begin to think about coming out of last week, the resurrection. What is it the resurrection brings us to? What does it bring to us? It brings us into a personal encounter with Jesus. The resurrection is not about church membership, and it's not about all the things that we've made it, though those are awesome things, and they bring us into fellowship and help us to be stronger together. But listen, make no mistake about it. Jesus did not resurrect himself for converts and for church members and church activity and Christian things. He brought us into full fellowship with him that we would be made disciples, that we'd be students, learned of the word, followers of him, that we would go out and replicate that 270 times the word disciple is used in scripture three times christian is used where's the emphasis placed the emphasis in places us going out and replicate and duplicating that's why i said be fruitful and multiply the fruit that we produce is indication of a healthy tree you and i locked into the root that the true vine And we're the branches and producing that fruit. And the fruit is other believers. And not just other believers in the form of converts, but people who also have an encounter with Jesus who will go out and do the same thing and on and on and on. The the spirit of multiplication. Not just adding people to a a church role. So I began to kind of ask this question. Why did they encounter him? If you look into the scripture, the people that personally engaged Jesus, had a personal encounter that are noted in Scripture. Why did they encounter him? Why were they mentioned out of the thousands of people? And what did they do once they encountered him? What did they take away from it? Here's, here's what I saw in every single one. And there's, there's about ten I've zeroed in on. And Lord willing, we'll look at each one of these because they're all different. But the one thing that's evidence, good, bad, or indifferent, everyone at every point in time that encountered Jesus, one thing is, is sure across the board. They all left walking away forever changed. You cannot encounter Jesus and not walk away transformed. Why you say that, Mark? Because you can come to church and some of y'all are like, I'm sorry, I got my hands folded. But here, here's what we do. And you may walk away unchanged. When you come face-to-face encounter with Jesus, the person of Christ, the Holy Spirit, you will walk away forever changed. I want to make one thing clear, though. 
If you look into the scriptures, there's five times that the Great Commission is mentioned. Five. Five is the number for grace. It's mentioned in Matthew 28, which we're going to look at tonight, just in a little bit, today. Matthew 28, 19, 18 and 19. It's mentioned in Mark 16 and 15. It's mentioned in Luke's gospel, 20 and 21. And it's mentioned in John 24 and 47. And then again, it's mentioned in Acts 1 and verse 8, where when he ascended on high, the final things that he spoke, indicating that this is the emphasis. This is why they had an encounter. The encounter was bringing us from the resurrection to the point of commission. Now, Matthew 28, there's a word used there that's not used in other commissions, so we call it the Great Commission. And it's this. In verse 18, it says that all authority has been given to him in heaven and in earth. Aren't you glad of that today? You know what he's saying? I'm in charge. I'm taking over. In the world that we know it today, completely different than then, he is taking over. You know what he says? I've not come here to take sides. I've not come here to draw denominational lines that you guys have drawn. I've not come here to say it's this church or that church or this church. I've not come to take sides. I've come to take over. And the reality is, is through that, he says this, go out and make disciples. That word in the Greek literally means this, to make pupils, to make learned students of the person of Jesus Christ so that in that encounter, they cannot, I'm going to use some bad grammar, you cannot leave Jesus and not do anything. Something in you will be desiring to get out. I think, though, what we've done, and I want to say this as a launching pad to this whole series, Encounter. Haven't we? Haven't we tried to separate the sacred from the secular? Haven't we? The church used to be the epicenter of all things politics. Did you know that? Do you know that the church used to be the epicenter of all things educational? You look at the whole point of school and colleges. All, virtually all of the Ivy League schools were founded as Bible institutes. Did you know that? Did you know that it was the center of town and community? That's why there's usually one with a bell tower or a clock or something in most small towns. It was the epicenter of town. It's where town hall meetings were, were held. You didn't separate this church and state in the way that people have, have kind of taken that and turned and said, we got to separate the two. Listen, you can't separate the two. For us to do that, here's what it looks like in the spiritual. In the spiritual, if we separate sacred church... Christianity, religion, from the secular, the world, education, politics, economy. Here's what it looks like. It ends up just being you and three or four other Christians surrounding yourself up, up in the community and dare not let anyone who doesn't believe the way you do into that circle. That's exclusivity. That's not what Jesus died for. Jesus didn't die to exclude people. He said, I've come that they may be saved, that none would perish, but that all come to repentance. And y'all been around here for a while. Y'all know I look up the words in the Greek. I worked up, looked up the word all. You know what it means? It means all. It means every person, every man, woman, boy, or girl. And listen, here's what we do. When we separate those two, we cease being the very light that God has called us to be. Listen, if I were to take my my trusty light, my flashlight. Aren't you glad? Praise the Lord for the flashlights on the phone. Amen. How many times have you used that at nighttime, right? But if I shine this light in here, this is both metaphorical and literal. With all these lights shining on me, if I shine this light, it doesn't really do anything. 
doesn't do anything because there's lights already in here. Not only literal lights, but metaphorically, we're believers. Listen, but if I go out into the darkness of night or the darkness of my bedroom and just cut on that one little light, man, that light permeates darkness and therefore begins to matter. Listen, the reality is this. When I encounter Jesus Christ, him being the light of the world, I now am not the source of the light, but merely a what? Reflector of that glorious light. The light matters most when I take it into a dark and dying and lost and depraved world. Guys, don't separate the two. Live out your faith in the secular world in which God has called you, in your job, in your school. And I don't want to hear that, that, that he's ta- we've taken prayer out of school. You can pray in school. You can live your faith in school. Holy Spirit gets to go with you in school. You get to be the person of Christ in school. And it may be the only Jesus your school ever sees. Same thing in your workplace. You don't have to over-preach it to make people come to know Christ. Here's what I believe to be true. Preach always and sometimes use words. Let them see your life. Let them see your reaction. You know what they'll do? They'll come up to you and go, hey, man, what, what's different about you? Then you go, I'm glad you asked. John's gospel, real quickly, John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 1. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes. We won't get far, but that's okay. I want to lay that foundation because I want you to know where we're going. John's gospel, chapter 3, verse 1. says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night, underscore that in your text, and said to him, Rabbi, which is to say master. Now that's important because he being a master of theology, being a Sanhedrin member, it's very important that he's going to this no-name guy who wasn't even declared a priest, much less a, a teacher, and declaring him Rabbi, master, teacher. We know that you're a teacher that's come from God. Why do you know that? He says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Why did God perform miracles? Signs, wonders, and miracles used interchangeably in the text. Only those three things are used in the same context. The miracles that we saw Jesus perform. Do you know why? Because the Jews themselves required a what? A sign. They required a sign to authenticate the message, so Jesus gave them one. And then he also gave the apostles the ability to do the same thing, to authenticate that message. Jesus answered him, and he said, most assuredly, I love this, I say unto you, this is our text, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? That's looking at it with a finite mind, but you're talking to a person with an infinite mind. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So we see context. He's speaking of the mother's womb, which is very important because of the next answer he says. Jesus answered most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water, which is in the womb, and of the spirit, which is obviously not context of the flesh, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell from where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Now watch this. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? This is the perplexed parody, if you will, of one of the most notable teachers of theology of the day. Literally, these men could quote the first five entire books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law, the books of Moses, word for word for word. They fasted at least twice a week, which is probably 
twice as much as we do, right? Twice a week they fasted. They prayed multiple times daily. They taught the word. They studied. Often they didn't even marry. They just sold themselves into the teaching and the learning of Scripture. We give Pharisees a bad name because of their hypocrisy, because they were hypocrites. Jesus told them that. He said, on the outside, you look amazing. You look beautiful like a a whitewashed tomb. On the inside, you're full of what? You're full of dead men's bones. Oh, He said, call them vipers and hypocrites. But make no mistake about it. That did not negate the fact that they were men of God of the day. In fact, they were the most conservative of the two groups. The Pharisee was the most conservative. And then the Sadducees were the very liberal. They were really out there. They did not believe in inspiration of Scripture. They didn't believe in inerrancy of the Bible. They didn't believe in the God of, they didn't believe in a triune, one God economy found in three persons. They didn't believe in a physical bodily resurrection. They didn't believe in the God of Abraham, of, of Jacob, and of Isaac. Pharisees believed all of that, yet much like us today, they lived a life of hypocrisy. I I, I like what the person who says, man, I I would come to your church, but man, I've been in there a couple times, man, it's full of hypocrites. I'm like, hey, dude, come on, there's room for one more. Truth be told, we all have hypocritical aspects, don't we? Okay, two people raise their hand. Thank you, brother, two people. Listen, we do. You don't want to admit that, but we do. Come on in. We, We take everybody, even Christians. Come on in, you know. Jesus said unto him, aren't you a teacher of Israel yourself? And you don't know these things. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. And then he goes on down. Listen to this. I just want to put it in context. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe the things that I tell you that are heavenly? Do you know why people can't understand the things of God? It's because they're trying to discern it with a fleshly mindset. It's alien unless you do it and receive it in the spirit of God. It's it's a mystery. But isn't it amazing? You know, the time I had an encounter with Jesus was one of the worst moments of my life. And I would open the Bible and I'd begin to read it. And I was more confused than when I opened it. Anybody ever been there before? You just read it like therewith and forthwith. I'm like, who's this Elizabethan language is killing me. King James, seriously, dude, help a brother out. And I'm reading through it. I'm like confused. And you know what I told the Lord? I said, Lord, if this is you, if this is your perfect law of liberty, and I said this, Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to me that I may see you, that I may understand you, that I may hear from you. Man, I started understanding it. And then, I, then I found myself in circles talking, and I throw out a scripture. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. I, I, I remembered it. Because his word will not go out and return unto him void. And then he goes on to say, watch this. He said, and Moses, he said, he said, no one has ascended to heaven, in verse uh, 13, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who was in heaven. He was speaking of himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, watch this. Here, here's our mandate for the church. Underline this because this becomes our biblical church mandate. This is why we gather. This is why it's important that we gather in number. Not only forsaking the fact that the Bible says in Hebrews, forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together, and that much the more as the day is approaching. The argument that we don't need church is is futile at best. We need each other. We need power. And watch this. If we come together, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says, when I be high and lifted up, I will draw all men into myself. And then watch this, verse 16, probably the most quoted text in the entire word of God. 
but I wanted you to get the context. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I love this. Man, I love verse 17. How many people read 16 and that's it? Read 17 with it. It's so beautiful. Listen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might through him be saved. Let's pray. Lord, I love you so much today, and I thank you for your word. I pray in Jesus' name you would help me to, as we cover this first point, just help me divide it in the way and the power so that your majesty and your renown, your name would be declared in Jesus' name. Amen. I I won't get past one, and that's cool. That's cool. We're not going to go fast. In talking about Nicodemus, let's, let's not just automatically default to this man who is a hypocrite. He knew his, of his hypocrisy. It's not just default to a man who was a part of, uh, of the Pharisee. And the Pharisee, well, here's what happened. In, in the context of them learning the scriptures, in the context of them worshiping the God of Abraham and of Jacob and of Isaac, in the context of them being the theological teachers of the day, in the context of them praying and fasting, they, they came to a point where they were so spiritually connected that they became no earthly good. Jesus was a master at separating the sacred from the secular. Don't, don't, don't think I'm, what I'm saying is sacrilegious. I want you to hear me. Jesus would do this often. When he would do something in the natural, i.e. feeding the 5,000, what would he do? What would be the first thing he would do? That's secular. He would separate himself into a place of prayer that's sacred. He would oftentimes, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we talked about uh, two weeks ago, what would he do? He would actually, he, he put them here, here's the eight and here's the three, and then he went further. He separated himself at that moment. But as he lived this life, he lived it among the secular. See, the Pharisees got to a point where they become, as we've now called it cliche, pharisaical. They became self-righteous. Guys, if we're real honest today, we do the same thing in church. We start plugging along. We start learning some scripture. We start learning some songs. We start seeing God move in our life. Isn't it easy to then turn around and look at people who, don't, who are not walking with Jesus in the way you are, and you look down your nose at them, and you start to judge them under a self-righteous mentality? Think about these guys who did this as a way of life. They were the ones who, if you look in the text, and it's mentioned several times, but they were the ones who would try to try to get the speck out of your eye all the while they're having a, a beam in their own. They were the ones that would say when someone would come in, they would say, well, I thank God I'm not like him. Or I, I thank God that I, I don't sin like that person. As, to, as opposed to saying, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. You see what I'm saying? And see, that's what they became known for. And in that mixture of self-righteousness, they became condemners of man. They became judgers. The Bible says, don't judge lest you be judged. In the same measure by which you offer judgment one to another, it'll be measured back to you. I want grace. How about you? Then you got to show grace. you got to live it out in your own life. Listen, the truth of it is, it wouldn't take you but just a moment to survey your own heart today and just go back in your mind a little bit and remember where you were. When you encounter Jesus, remember where you were when you were in the secular and there was no sacred. 
Remember where you were when you were running from God and he pursued you. And maybe he even sent sent somebody in your life who came alongside of you and didn't judge you, but loved you right where you were and loved you through the arms of grace and mercy and extended that and so much so that you were drawn to the cross. You see, the Pharisee in Nicodemus made him wealthy. Nicodemus was an incredibly wealthy man. He was one of the supreme beings within the Sanhedrin Council. The Sanhedrin Council was the highest echelon of theological control of the day. Even among the Pharisees, they were the top, top, top echelon. If we could kind of make this equivalent to something, even though it's not the same, I just want to give you an understanding. It would be like the Pope is over the church at Rome, the Catholic Church. He would have had that kind of say and that kind of authority, at least within the confines of Jewish culture. They were also rulers over the lower court. You remember when Jesus was tried, he went through religious trials. So he went before the Sanhedrin. Guess who was there? Nicodemus. Now what I'm speaking to you happened before the the mock trials of which he was a part. I'll get to that next week. But I also want you to know that he was so wealthy, he was so learned. If you could say it this way, he was a man that had everything. He had life by the throat. Those are the hardest people in the world to reach. You know why? Because you cannot prove to them in the flow of natural life in which they live that they are void of hope. First point is that there was a void in Nicodemus's heart. Keith didn't know I was preaching this, but I, it's interesting that as he was sharing a moment ago that he used this little this little statement that we oftentimes say, I don't really know who came up with it. It was probably David, but I'll take credit. That there's a God-sized hole in our heart. For every person that's ever been born, as the band comes back, every person that's ever been born of a woman, every single one of us has a void in our heart. It can't be filled with money because money can be lost. It can't be filled with businesses. Businesses will close their doors. It cannot be filled with children. Children grow up and become teenagers. Amen? It cannot be filled with grandbabies, although it's really close. It can't be filled with songs and stuff and religious activity. It can't be filled with anything that this world has. There's no drug. There's no body. There's, no, there's nothing that can give you that totality of peace that can come only from the person of Jesus Christ in an encounter with him. So it's interesting. It's super interesting to me that Nicodemus had everything. He walked in the town. People honored him. Unlike the Filipino pastor I was sharing with you who was berated every time he walked in. When he walked in, people would come up to him and say, oh, Master Adonai, that's what they called them. He said, will you pray for me? Will you pray over me? Sure, I will pray for you. And they would wax eloquent in the city. And people would look at them and go, oh, my gosh, it's amazing the words that they say. Can I tell you today as a little caveat to that? Let me offer you a sidebar to that. God is not the least bit interested in your fancy words when you approach his throne. The reality is, as the Bible says, we don't even know how to pray. But there's an intercessor, Jesus, King Jesus, who's speaking on our behalf. God's not the least bit concerned about your waxing eloquent over people. I had one time when we first started the church, a guy told me, he said, man, man, I would come to your church. He said, I can't. He said, you just, you just, you don't really go deep. I went, cool. 
Because deep is something that we do. I believe the gospel is simple enough for a five-year-old if he's listening. There's no depth. The depth is where the Holy Spirit opens up your bankrupt soul and begins to deposit wealth in you that you can't even fathom if you're the highest of academic intellect. See, it's foolishness to the world, but it's the power and the salvation for you and I. I'm just foolish enough to believe every word in this book. And you know what? It's the power and the salvation for you and I. But listen to what he says. There was a void in his heart. He could not be saved and made right with God because of religion. You know, it's interesting. I heard a guy one time, and I don't disagree with this, a spoken word guy, I can't remember his name, who, who did a thing about he hated religion. Y'all, how many of y'all saw that? He said, I hate religion. Okay, praise God, not many. Okay, cool. And I get where he was coming from. He hated religion. Because religion is the man-made order of the church. Or is it? If you go back into the Latin language, you realize that the word religion is where we get the word relationship. So I say, let's embrace religion. But let's not do it in a manner that it becomes exclusive. Let's not do it in a manner where we start to look at people as less than because maybe we're just in a a sweet spot with the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, my friend. You're but one step and one decision away from absolute and total failure. You pass by the homeless guy on the street like the Pharisees would do. They walk past blind Bartimaeus. How many times did they walk past the guy? He would just ask for alms. They'd walk around him. How many times did they walk past, walk past different people that were begging the crippled? Because they couldn't help him. They couldn't do what Jesus could do, which was give sight to the blind. They could take the lame and say, stand up and take your bed and walk. They, could, they couldn't even touch a, a leper who was unclean or a woman with the issue of blood. We're going to talk about these people in the weeks to come. But Jesus wasn't afraid of these people. It was against the law for a priest to even touch a person that was unclean. Yet that woman touched Jesus and grabbed on the hem of his garments and was made whole immediately. You see, when I I look at this, the void in his heart was brought about by curiosity in Nicodemus. And as I studied that word void, void, it's it's really amazing. And I want to share this with you today. And I'm going to close here. I, I really want you to grab this and take this home with you. If you look into the first words... Of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The very first word in the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved over the waters. And then you get into the other parts of the let there be. It was God's word that ignited the newness of creation. It was God's word that created the fowl of the air and the beast of the sea. And the, the, the sea of the ocean and the beast of the land. He, it, was, it was his word that said, let there be trees. And, and hey, they don't have to start as saplings because I'm God. And when I create them, they're bearing fruit from day one. That'll preach. They were fruit bearing on day one. But I want to concentrate on that. And the earth was without form and void and darkness covered the face of the deep. I wrote this down. Without God, Nicodemus and you and I today 
Regardless of how much wealth, how much esteem, how many accolades, how much stuff, how many titles by our name. Every person at best is void and in total darkness, shapeless, hopeless. And that void was founded by the person of Nicodemus, one of the most brilliant minds ever to walk the face of the earth. And yet he walks up to Jesus. Rabbi, I don't know that I believe everything about you, which is evidence next week I'll share with you. Rabbi, what, what, what's really going on here? What I see you doing has to come from God. Can I tell you something? When you are walking with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in the fullness of your life, the outflow of your life is undeniable to those who watch. You don't have to pat yourself on the back. Truth be told, when you're really doing something for the glory of God, you will humble yourself. And he said, and I will exalt you in due time. Jesus never proclaimed any of these things over his life. He never walked in. And I wonder sometimes, Keith, why he didn't walk into the city street and go, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you have prayed for. I'm the one who will enter into the, to the city of Jerusalem. He knew all the scripture. He wrote them. It was his word. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. But he walked as a humble man, never declaring himself Adonai, yet they called him Adonai. Never declaring himself a rabbi, yes, they called him Rabboni. Never declaring himself El Shaddai, yet he was the fullness of God in that area. I love that. Because what it was that Nicodemus saw in him was the undeniable, unapologetic truth that what he saw him doing had to come from God. So why did he come? You know, the Bible says, what will it profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet he loses his soul? He forfeit his soul. I kind of feel like that's really fitting for Nicodemus. The void, the hole in his heart the one thing missing was the one thing that mattered the most. And that was a personal encounter with the person of God, Jesus Christ. You know, today, I believe if you're watching by Facebook Live, if you're listening to the podcast later, or if you're in this room, if you have merely become a convert, converted from an unbeliever to a believer, I think you missed something. If you have merely walked the aisle of any church and said, yeah, you know, here's, here's my paperwork. I feel I want to be a member. And then maybe even go to the step of being baptized. Can I tell you, you can join every church in this community and be baptized in every pool of water from here to Macon, here to Atlanta, here to Columbus. And that doesn't make you right with God. I, I've seen, and you have too. You have too. And maybe, you, maybe you've been there. I, I was there. You could be raised in church your entire life. And you could even know the Bible. You know, who, you know who knows the Bible really well? Satan and his cronies. So much so that watch this. The Bible says the demons in hell, they, they tremble. They believe and they tremble. They know who he is. They know the finality of their fate. They're doomed. They are defeated foes already. So what is it then? About Nicodemus. What is it about the part of Nicodemus in each of us? Maybe we feel like that once we get this, then we're okay. Once we accomplish this, then we're okay. Once we, here's what I want you to do today. 
I want you to take your hand, metaphorically, and I want you to just, in your heart, I want you to just rake everything in the floor. Just take all the stuff, all the deeds, all the activities, all the rush events, all the Easter plays, all the times that you think you've done something, and you're like, man, you're amazing. Take all of that and throw it into the floor. The times you've thrown your money in the plate, and you're like, God, me and you like that. Take all that and throw it into the floor for just a minute and see what's left. And man, I say this from the bottom of my heart, with every respect I can offer you. If what's left is not the person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God, operating in the full resurrection power, if that's not what's left, you're lost. And you have nothing. But here's the beauty of that. You can also take the failure The gossiping, the alcoholism, the addiction, the adultery, the fornication, the hatred, the cruelty. And you put all that stuff on the table, rake it in the floor, and steal the very thing that could be left is the person of Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. And you're saved. You're redeemed. You're brand new. Old things passed away. That's like raking in the floor. Behold, all things are being made new, moment by moment, day by day. Mark, I failed yesterday, newness today. Mark, I'm going to fail today, newness tomorrow. Keep walking in the newness. His mercies are are brand new every day. So today, I wonder if you'd bow your heads with me all over the room and just rake it all in the floor for just a moment. Not about your wife, your spouse, your, your, your children, your membership, your servitude. Your extraordinary voice or extraordinary giving. Hey, praise God for those things. Those are talents and gifts that God gives you. But what's left, my friend? Maybe you're that second part of that story. Maybe you're the failure and you think today, Mark, there's no way. Oh, there's a way and his name is Jesus. The way is a person. His name is Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Rake it in the floor today and see what's left. If Jesus is not standing supreme in your heart, Lord of all, I wonder right now, man, right now, would you just make it, make it certain? Pray with me from your heart to God. Father in heaven, I admit that I have a void. There's a darkness. There's a, there's no shape to my life. There's no shape to my purpose. There's a, a depth that I want to know. And I believe today that can only be filled by you, Jesus. Forgive me for all my sin. Make it personal. If you didn't say any of those things, you just want to say this. Jesus, save me. Be the Lord of my life. Help me to live for you until the day you call me home. In Jesus' name.